0: Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio Today I am joined by a man From the country where nobody could invade Although they did try But we kicked him out Ronan Daugherty, how are you doing?
1: Hi Ian, how are you? Thanks for having me
0: Now people are going, Ronan Daugherty? i never heard that name before If you're from <laughs> America or Australia You pronounce it Doherty. So don't yeah, tell me we Doherty pronounce Or or
1: all sorts of different variations
0: That's it, and then, then they have the cheek to tell you that you pronounce it wrong Because you're Irish <laughs> I
1: know <laughs>
0: The running whereabouts in the uh, Emerald Isle are you today?
1: So, I'm in Bunkrana in County Donegal, so I'm in the northwest tip of Ireland.
0: So, next stop to you would be pro Iceland.
1: Uh, it depends what way you're facing And you know, Next stop, Iceland, or, or next stop, <laughs> Boston. <laughs>
0: that's it, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, it's a little bit f- a little bit away from my hometown. This is this is what's crazy about Ireland, actually. So, I'm from yeah. Athlone, right in the middle yeah and at loan to Donegal like over where you are, what would it be 100 and, would it be 200 kilometers? maybe less
1: Probably around 200 you're talking We'd be talking a three hour drive anyway?
0: Yeah, and the difference in the accents is crazy. like you can drive 20 Ks you know or 20, 20 16 miles and you get a difference in different in the accents so
1: Well if you go from here here to Derry is 10 minutes Oh, and the accents yeah. are completely different like completely different no way related at all really but i every county really has a different accent it's crazy
0: that's for sure and even within the counties then Aye. and then, and then so you get you get you get like uh, rivalries between the provinces you get rivalries between the counties you then you get yeah. rivalries within the counties then you get rivalries within the, the, the parishes of those counties and then you get rivalries yeah. in the in the towns within those as well that's what we like to do i think we just like to have rivalries
1: I think it's pretty, like it's uh, you, as you said like it's towns and then people outside the town, people from the town, different parishes. I suppose it's all a lot of it's based on Gaelic games and stuff, isn't it? So yeah, it's just local rivalries and look, okay, it's good yeah. though. I think you know you always find when when Irish people go away, we always sort of stick together, don't we?
0: Do we'll 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 kill each other when we're at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I used to spend a bit of time up in your neck of the woods I uh, lived up in Donegal there for a little while uh, When I was what in part? the army I was in uh, Bundoran there a Finner Camp In oh,
1: 1997 right. Four years ago Yeah, Wow it yeah. Was, uh, I was going to say it's closed But it's not, I think it's still open But Lifford Camp's closed, isn't it?
0: Oh, I think Lifford closed, yeah, but mm-hmm. Finner Camp um, yeah. That's I think it's might. pretty busy Is
1: it? so? I think it's still busy
0: So we're right in um, there between uh, Bundoran and Ballyshannon
1: Aye, and that's I about camp. the only thing between Bundoran and Ballyshannon.
0: Yeah <laughs> I'd many a drunken night in those two towns <laughs> I
1: was going to say uh, You know what, you want to watch yourself in Ballyshannon, and Bundoran
0: Aye, <laughs> <laughs> uh, some good old, uh, good old times You used to walk into some pubs and people would say Nah, you're not welcome here <laughs> I'm like, okay, out you go
1: Some the army the... boys
0: coming, with you. <clears throat> well, that as well And I think a few of the pubs were run by the Ra And they didn't want Irish <laughs> army lads in So we were like, you turned out, you go it was a beautiful, beautiful part of the world there. I really liked... Um, ah, it is
1: lovely. Donegal and in general is lovely, is beautiful, but I'm biased, yeah. obviously. Done it, but Ireland in general, obviously beautiful, but I think, you know, they saved the best bit for the top.
0: It's I I, I think like, Donegal is beautiful when you're in a car looking out. Like, it is beautiful, but, <laughs> man, it gets, some, it gets some good weather. I was up there in the middle of winter, like and you're looking out there to... Uh, is it Ben Bulben? Is that a yeah. Mount? Yeah. You see the snow on top of that there, and we don't get a lot of snow in Ireland, so when you see snow there, you no. know it's pretty fucking cold <laughs> i
1: was gonna say wintertime army exercises wouldn't be too much fun up there
0: oh do you know i got the um i got my leave insert results um lying in in the sand at the back of inner camp one of the ncos came down i was i was finishing off my training and we were doing this like pop-up target thing on the beach like we are running through the dunes and oh, the pop of these targets and he shouted at me do it again while we're here i said what you your pastor leaving, sir. Barely. Now get back out there. Don't fucking deny me again. <laughs> so there you go. That's, uh, that's how I started off my scientific career. <laughs> a, good
1: up, a good start. Upwards from there.
0: Upwards from there, yeah. I was like, Jesus Christ, I need to go back to school and get out of here. Anyway, enough old stories, running of yesterday or back in the old century. Um, so Ronan, give us a bit of background on you. Um, could you tell it maybe for the people who are listening, um, you know, where you were born, where you grew up, and maybe any sports you played when you were younger?
1: Yeah, so I was actually born in, in County Down, so my mom's from Newcastle and County Down, so it's the direct opposite side from Donegal, so so northeast yes. in Northern Ireland. So I was born there, um, but we never actually lived there. Um, so I'm a twin, and my grandfather's a doctor, so my mom went up there just for some extra care when she was having us. So we stayed there. We were in hospital for a while after we were born, and then we, we came home to Donegal. So we've, we've always lived in, in Donegal. Grew up here in Bunkrana, playing a lot of soccer and Gaelic predominantly. Liked a bit of athletics as well. Enjoyed running. Um, went to school here, then ended up, went to St. Mary's in Belfast first to study PE. So PE teaching. Yep. And... Decided very quickly that uh, secondary school PE teaching wasn't for me. <laughs> Particularly back then, it wasn't a it's it wasn't a PE subject. It's only very recently that it's actually a, an exam subject. Sorry, in uh, in Ireland. So before yeah. that, it was kind of just you know yourself. You've been through it. It's a bit of bit of fun, bit of crack throughout the football. <laughs> um. So I went on and and did a masters in nutrition and physical activity, and. Started focusing more on working within nutrition as a performance yeah. nutritionist, um, and then and at the minute I'm I'm back studying again. I'm, I've just started. Well, sorry, I haven't just started. I'm about to finish a PhD in sleep nutrition and athlete recovery, um, and and that's in Northumbria. So, Northumbria in England. Yeah.
0: And so, do you so, do that in conjunction like with a uni in? Uh, yeah. Ar- so
1: no, that- I I'm lucky kind of with my work. So I work predominantly as a lecturer at LAT, so Letterkenny Institute of Technology, but I also work with the Sport Ireland Institute as a member of the performance nutrition team. So we've partnered up with my boss there, uh, Dr. Sharon Madigan. She's one of my supervisors. And then I've partnered up with Professor Jason Ellis in Northumbria. So he's the director of the Northumbria Centre for Sleep Research. And then I've got a... Another supervisor, Dr. Jades Warrington from uh, the University of Limerick. So it's a nice partnership, you know. It's obviously UK and Ireland, but um, a couple of academic institutions, then and more kind of applied sports institute, and then obviously partnered up with North Northumbria and their expertise around sleep.
0: Excellent. All right. So, um, so it it's technically a PhD with Northumbria University. Yeah, that's
1: that's where I graduated from. Yeah. Excellent. Do
0: you have any links down there to University of Limerick?
1: Um, well, like I said, Giles Warrington, my key supervisor, he's he's head of the PE and Sports Science Department in UL. Okay. Um, but on a day-to-day, no, I wouldn't, have, wouldn't really have any links with UL bar oh. obviously working with Giles.
0: Yeah, one of my previous uh, mates from here, uh, he did his honours. I was his supervisor on his honours, uh, Tim Smitty's. He's okay. from Perth, but he's actually gone to the University of Limerick to do a PhD and he's looking oh, at sleep and cognition. Um, He's down there. So I might put you in touch with him after. He was on the podcast a few years ago when he was doing his honours. And we have a okay. paper in that's under review at the moment looking at travel and jet lag, which I'm sure we'll talk about today yeah. in a super rugby team. So Tim actually ran that project. And um, yeah. so, yeah, we'll I actually
1: um, listen to that episode. It was really good. Yeah, so
0: Tim's down in Limerick now. Yeah. Okay, very good. Yeah, so he's doing a PhD sponsored by Logitech, I believe. But yeah, oh, put you in touch with him afterwards, might be a bit of a cross. Yeah, that'd be great. There. Tim's a great. Doing a lot right?
1: of good work around sleep and, and UL, you know. Obviously, it's an emerging area and, you know, loads yeah. of people are focusing
0: on it now. Yeah, it's definitely an emerging area, yeah. So when you were growing up, you played like Gaelic football. Yeah. So can you describe that for people who don't know what Gaelic football is? Because they probably think it's like running around playing soccer with an Irish accent.
1: I it I kind of grates on me but i'm going to use the description that er, everyone does so you can't when you get asked that outside ireland you start thinking how am i going to explain this and everyone kind of says the same thing it's like a mix between rugby football and american football but that's kind of doing it an, an injustice i'd say yeah. for people that have never seen it just go on youtube and, and google gaelic football um and have a look it's I think it's a brilliant sport but I suppose if you were to describe it it kind of is a mix between rugby soccer and American football in that you can catch and kick the ball you're trying to score between I suppose you know AFL is quite similar you know and obviously there's crossover there where some of our elite players go over to Australia and try and try and make it as professionals within the AFL so
0: yeah so if you're Um, in Australia Australian rules football will be the closest thing to it and obviously there's been um, hybrid matches before
1: where, yeah, uh, I think Australia. they've had to, they've
0: had to stop then, haven't they? Or yeah, because maybe they may be starting them again. It got a bit it got a bit too rough. There's
1: too many
0: fights going on, yeah. Uh, it was uh, starting to get a bit tasty, wasn't it? It was. It was after few of the games and it, yeah, it was it was quite <laughs> it was quite <laughs> it was quite crazy, I could tell you that. Yeah, yeah, it was a good lot of fun. Um <laughs> so Ronan, um you said about um being a nutritionist. So what's the difference yeah. between a nutritionist and a dietitian?
1: suppose it's the type of training that you've done and maybe what, what you choose to focus on. So obviously a dietitian has to do a dietetics course. Yeah. Um, And nutrition actually was something I was always interested in, but um, like I said, PE was what what I chose to pursue first and nutritionist is also accredited. And there are lots of moves uh, in different areas, you know, there's big pushes in Australia and UK and here in Ireland to, to move towards accreditation and most, nutritionists are accredited now. So you see things like the SENR and the Association yeah. for Nutrition who provide sort of impartial accreditations for nutritionists. But I think the route to becoming a nutritionist is obviously a lot more varied in terms of people's experience and what they bring. But I think for me, anyway, the key thing is in terms of my work with athletes is focusing on their health first and then all the key areas like fuel and recovery, mm um individualizing their nutrition based on what they're actually doing. So their sport, their training, all the things around that. So I suppose yeah, it's more around how the person has trained and probably the setting that they choose to work in. So there's lots of good dietitians that move into sport and work within sport or with athletes, but obviously predominantly a lot of dietitians work in kind of community settings, healthcare settings and in hospitals. And more yeah. with people who potentially ha- have illness, whereas nutritionists tend to more focus on you no. Know, in general, this is a very general oh, yeah, yeah, statement, yeah. but obviously tend to focus more on active people or people who are exercising. Or obviously, the the kind of area that most people want to get into is is more sports.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Uh, I always, I always like asking that question because I always Aye. get confused myself. <laughs> so Ronan, can you give us a, a quick overview um, a kind of quick synopsis of your PhD aims and, and what you're, um, yeah. what you're working towards? And then after that, then we'll delve into a couple of the topics here. Cause I've got some questions okay. I want to ask you on some of your recent publications.
1: Perfect. So I think the, the key kind of overview of the PhD or the key idea behind it was to look at the interactions between sleep nutrition and athlete recovery. Um, So that's based around predominantly four key areas that I'm in the middle of starting to publish now. So the first one was a kind of just a review, obviously, uh, on sleep and nutrition interactions. So looking at all the kind of current uh, and, you know, all the research around sleep and nutrition and looking at what athletes potentially could do to promote sleep and then different nutritional practices or, Foods or nutrients, particularly that can, can impact sleep. Then, the first sort of empirical work out of that is probably what we're going to talk most about today is a paper on the sleep and recovery practices of athletes. So, we looked at a large sample, so 338 athletes. Um, might get these figures wrong, but 115 elite and 223. Hold on, there, hold on, there, I'll elite.
0: fact check you. I'll fact check you. 338, yeah, that's right. How many elite was there? I'll ask you that.
1: There was 120. No, no, no. Put me on the spot. 120. Sorry, there's 223 sub elite. That's So right. that leaves 120, <laughs> 145 elite athletes. Think, yeah, come on, with it's maths it's could be me it's 115 elite. 100, <laughs> 115 is, so it's only, I actually it's know the male and female figures better. There's 74 males and 41 females in the elite group and 129 <laughs> males and 94 females since there you are, there you are. You're redeemed so so yourself. <laughs> they uh, completed about an online battery of uh, questionnaires, so a lot of sleep and recovery questionnaires. Which we'll, we'll dig get into more detail yeah. as we go and uh the final two studies that I'm just in the well, I have one more or less written up. Got a few uh, corrections from my supervisors, but it's nearly done. Uh, is a paper on jet lag, so we're looking at the impact of long haul eastward travel on a group of elite cyclists. And then the last paper is looking at kiwi fruit um, consumption and sleep, and again a group of elite so elite sailors and uh athletes so so track and field as you might as people might call them so we're yep. looking at uh a month long intervention so a baseline week and then four week kiwi fruit so consuming two kiwi fruit one hour before bed and looking at the impact of that on, on their sleep and their kind of general recovery as well
0: no worries um, all right let's uh let's dig into some of these so let's um let's just touch on the narrative review yeah um these narrative reviews are becoming more and more popular. What's the difference between a narrative review, a systematic review, and a meta-analysis review?
1: So suppose the, the key difference is in, in the depth of analysis of the actual research and probably on, on the breadth of research that you can include. So for the narrative review, obviously, you're trying to include basically everything that's out there of, of decent quality if you know what I mean, then obviously when you, when you do a systematic review, there are very, very strict criteria. So you might follow follow the Prisma criteria or whatever. And then obviously the amount of research that you can include in that review is cut down based, based on uh, your search terms and whatever you're focusing on. And then obviously in terms of a meta analysis, you're looking more in detail at the actual impact of, of different interventions on whatever key question you're looking at. But for me, I thought, in terms of the amount of research that's out there in sleep and nutrition, obviously there, there is more and more and it's, it's, well, in the last decade, obviously it's become really popular, but in terms of the actual review, we felt that um, an art of review would probably tell the story better and I could include more research and, and and try and show the evidence for, for the different um, nutritional interventions or nutrients and how they could impair or, promote sleep in athletes and I think narrative reviews are probably becoming more popular as well because I think more and more being published people seem to enjoy reading them and I think it's a good kind of jumping off point in terms of research because it gives you a kind of holistic picture obviously a systematic review review sorry will do that as well but I think a narrative is a good starting point in terms of an area that's emerging sorry I, was, I got a passed a cup of coffee there
0: my god have you got an assistant
1: <laughs> i don't think she'd like being called my assistant my wife <laughs> passed oh me a cup of coffee.
0: <laughs> she might pour it over your head i no, my if my if i ask my wife for a coffee she come in and clatter me across the oh, head
1: i didn't I, I didn't ask either i didn't i didn't have to ask i have to add that Jesus
0: Christ, you're lucky there I'll tell you one thing you should you should pause this recording and go out there and thank her and get down on your knees there and, and thank her for that because that's that's great treatment my I'd never get that here. I can say this, you know? to see, about, about my wife because she won't listen to the podcast she said. Like I can <laughs> well, I can wait, say whatever so I want. To. I can so say so whatever I want. You, thanks about. for
1: the coffee.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um so with the narrative review Ronan, when you went through all that, because and I'm gonna to come to a question. Okay. I, just um so I've spoken to Charlotte Gupta, who you might know. Yeah, yeah. CQU. She's done her um, PhD around sort of shift work and chronic nutrition. It's so obviously, like you say, an emerging topic or emerging area of interest. Mm-hmm. When you kind of tackle this from a sleep and athletic and performance recovery type of point of view, what yeah. jumped out of you as a surprise that had not been done or even that what was done and was, wasn't even known?
1: I think just in general, like it's the reason that I wanted to do a PhD in sleep is ever, sorry, I had to make there ever since I've started working with athletes and it was quite a long time ago now. <laughs> it's always sleep's always been something that athletes mm-hmm. talk about. But then when you, you dig into the research, yes, you know, we all know about caffeine and its impact on sleep. And we, we know that certain foods promote sleep, but beyond that, there's lots of work still to be done. And you know, at times or in certain areas, I don't want to say the quality of the work, because usually the quality is good, but kind of the breadth of the work in terms of particularly athletes is like I said earlier, it's only emergence. So there's a lot more work to be done. Like a lot of the evidence that's out there isn't really in athletic populations or if it is, they're usually not elite populations. So I think yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And I think the appetite's there now too, because, you know, sleep's always, mentioned by athletes it's the thing they want to talk about they want to know how to sleep better or how much sleep they need so for me it's it's the thing that's missing really the key thing that's missing is just more work with real elite populations and again people's definition of that can 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 vary a lot as well so that can make it difficult when you're looking at the research you know in terms of defining elite athletes
0: yeah, I think um, I think it's an interesting point that number one, there really is not much work done, and even like when you look at shift work, like where I do a lot of work as well and in mm-hmm. industrial applications, so little done there around, you know, sort of eating for performance. You want to call it that when yeah. it was working shift works, shift work. The other thing I found as well, because I've delved into this topic a few times myself out of interest from more of the industry work I've done, and I'm doing some research with um, looking at IBS and fiber fix as well. Yeah. One of the things that always strikes me is that the lack of, maybe the lack of, the lack of depth of quality measures is an issue, yeah. I think. And I think that's something that probably would need to be addressed. So, um, you know, we've got the self-reported measures down at the bottom of the table, if you want to call it that, if we think yeah, about it yeah. like in terms of a ladder, like we have self-reported, like, how did you sleep last night, Ron? And yeah, yeah, not too bad, you know, you know, four hour, five then we start getting into more like detailed diaries. Then we go into more validated questionnaires about sleep problems and disorders. Yeah. Then we start moving into like wearable devices. Then we move into more validated wearable devices, you know, that have been undergone peer review publication. Then we start moving into ambulatory sleep monitoring, what yeah. we call polysomnography. So we got polysomnography level four, and then we move all up to like level one in polysonography So there's a big kind of a a slew, I suppose, or a spread of different ways to measure sleep. And, one of the things I find in the chronic nutrition world is that it's very low down in terms of that level of quality yeah. measurement if I can call it that we have very little up at the top end of p s g and like what you said as well, very little in athletes, and then the ones that are done yeah. in athletes the kind of it generally doesn't even go past kind yeah. of wrist actigraphy
1: no, it doesn't I think that's you know something I suppose that is the key thing like conducting p s g with athletes is obviously quite invasive and. You know, expensive. you're limited in terms of it's expensive. Yeah. And, you know, you can't really conduct it in season because you're, mm. you know, at the elite end anyway, I can't see too many teams agreeing to come into a sleep lab through the weekend. they run up to a game or, or anything like that. Or you might get one night, but you're not going to get more than one night. Um, so, yeah, I think like you were talking about, you know, you've got your table of measures. I think just it's moving up one step at mm. a time. And, and, and you know, that's what I mean is, you know, if you have kind of a research plan, then yeah, it's moving away from totally kind of self-report measures to the more objective measures or combinations of both. Um, and I think the other problem around sleep is that it's very, very individualized. And I think a lot of the advice around sleep needs to move towards more individualized messages, both from a chrononutrition point of view and in general from a kind of sleep prescription point of view as well. Yeah, I fully, I fully agree with that. That's one of the biggest
0: things I've been saying over the last year. Or so, is that we need to start the, the demographic type data or the group data is interesting yeah. and it's nice and it's good to show that in general these things are happening, yeah. which can can help coaches in terms of like designing training schedules, travel plans, optimizing recovery. It's good for that. But then we have to like tease out that line. Um, if we have 15 players in a team or 25 players yeah. in the squad, we need to tease out all those individual lines of data and work with them around the specific issues. Because um, I've even found uh, some of the top sleepers, if you want to put them into categories or buckets or bins or whatever, some yeah. of the top sleepers, even though they're really good, they're the ones that are freaking out more than the guy that's only getting six hours sleep a night. Because they've got themselves in this yeah. kind of negative loop like that they think they can't sleep. Like, man you're getting like eight and a half yeah. hours. Like, it's and some guys even come in and have done polysonography before. You're like, man, like you slept eight and a half hours. Oh, no, no, I didn't. Yeah. Your machine is wrong. Like, it's like, <laughs> no, it's like top level, level one <laughs> in okay. that PSG. There's no way it's wrong. Yeah. And so, it's really important as well to keep throwing measures at people like this to, to show that they don't have a problem. So, it, it goes both yeah, ways, definitely.
1: I yeah, I think, uh, there is a lot of that as well that you know, if if you are if you are going into a team to do stuff on sleep it's, it's the messaging around it and educating them about what good sleep is and that good sleep may be slightly different for each of them is really important because yeah like you said there and it's the same for nutrition a lot of the time that when when you go in to start to work with the team everyone starts to to worry and, and am i doing the right things and yeah. is the are the things i'm doing helping me in terms of performance and i suppose that's Kind of a key thing that you need to do with athletes is always tailor your messages back to performance because that's that's what they want. They don't they're not interested in anything else. It's, is this going to let me perform or is this going to help me recover so that I can perform? You know, it always comes back to performance.
0: Yeah, I think definitely is I think that's that's a key measure. Yeah. We are doing this to to get optimizing performance yeah. and, and recovery, and recovery enables performance. Um and I think like also a point in that. And sleep researchers who are listening to this episode will be like, yeah, yeah, that's that's great, and that you want everybody to do PSG, and yeah, it's it's very expensive. I understand that, and it's not practical to do it every single night across the season. But there might be certain time points you do it. Um, you know, I think like those type of studies can cost you thousands upon thousands of dollars, and the type of work that we do and what you're getting into on chronic nutrition, if you want to start taking blood and saliva and doing yeah. PSG, like you could be looking at like a couple of hundred thousand euros there for a big project, like very yeah. easily. So it's not, it's not something where you just, you know, get people to give you a food diary or, no. you know, write down in the back of a cigarette pack of what they ate that week. It's, it's, it gets very complex when we want to try and look at these interactions. It
1: gets very complex very, very quickly. And as you said, yeah. very expensive. Um, but, you know, it's, it has to be done. It's It's where it's going. And I think, you know, it is emerging. More and more people are becoming interested in it. I think it's 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 work that has to be done. Yeah. You know, So it's got to be facilitated some ways. So, you know.
0: With the, with the evidence you've seen so far, what what's the recommended approach you would say for maybe collecting measures around, you know, sleep and nutrition in 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 in, in under the under the umbrella of the fact that like we can't spend tons yeah. of money, but what can we do now?
1: I think again, I'm, kind of, I'm probably going to shoot myself in the foot here because I'm going to say oh, stuff that ahead. I didn't do to this point. Scud <laughs> <laughs> all my research. But no, I think it's, uh, the first thing is time-based, so being able to conduct the measures over a long period of time. And then the other thing, I suppose we've kind of touched on it anyway, but the big one with a lot of these self-report measures is participant burden. So you can, you know, implement and set up uh, online stuff or like it's obviously commonplace anyway within within sports or within different teams to do a lot of kind of wellness stuff daily anyway. So athletes are open to recording lots of data, but you know, as you start introducing more and more stuff. So like in an ideal world, if you were doing a, a food diary every day or collecting all, all the data on everything they've eaten and drank that day. And then you're looking at a sleep diary as well, and maybe recording some wellness data around that, you know, very quickly you have people completing questionnaires or online stuff that takes 10, 20 minutes a day. So very, very quickly, you're either getting the same answers every day or they, Mm -hmm. they stop doing it. So I think around that it's probably, and again, accepting that PSG probably isn't feasible long-term with the team, then it's implementing some sort of objective measure of sleep. So if it's actigraphy, you know, go with the best possible um, and most reliable piece of kit that you can, you can get and roll out over the longer term. Cause I think getting data over a long period of time is from what I've looked at the most important thing, you know, even in, in my my own studies the, the longest period of sleep data that i have is self-reported sleep stuff and it's a month sorry five weeks long in mm-hmm. terms of actigraphy the longest study that i've conducted up to now is uh 14 15 days of, of data so you know it is very difficult to collect that longer longer term more perspective data but th- that's that's where it has to go i think yeah um <coughs> yeah
0: I think, like, uh, it, it is difficult, yeah.
1: Like, the longest
0: group I ever had collecting data was probably 70 nights. Wow. Across 11 players in a basketball team that people got published yeah. before Christmas. But then I've recently started working with an athlete in the US, and he came okay. to me with 800 nights of data. Wow. You know, so some... Well, he, some cl- he collected it himself? Yeah, uh, he collected himself himself. Eight, 800 nights of data.
1: Like that's well, thing, well, that's how did, that they, how did he collect? With. What was he using to collect the data?
0: He was using a, a device that's a bit sketchy. I'm not going to say the name, but it's a, okay. It's not worn on your wrist. It's worn on your finger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a. It's a bit wobbly when you compare it to PSG. But the thing is, ah, like,
1: but I think you know when you've got it over that long term and you know he's obviously elite i'm assuming you know so mm. that long-term data on an elite athlete i think still there's a lot in that and you know obviously acknowledging the limitations of the data but then there's a lot of the pros to that long real long-term data oh, yeah. as well.
0: it gives you yeah. a general idea of behaviors and such over time as well yeah exactly so yeah and i and i think like it's just it's great to work with an athlete that's so dedicated to their recovery you know yeah. in terms of come with all those measures kind of going what do i do with this which yeah, is great so yeah like i said i don't want to mention the device but it was called no. the or- <laughs> yeah but look, sure. all these devices have, have limitations and strengths. so course. no matter which one you use all right let's dig into this uh first paper running at your uh your role called um the uh one on sleep and recovery sorry that the title yeah. scares me here my thing sleep and time.
1: recovery practices of athletes um, yeah, so like I said, it was a real large sample. or Well, I think it's a big sample anyway, 338 uh, athletes. No, it's definitely definitely a big sample, yeah. Yeah, predominantly recruited from from the UK and Ireland. So like I said already, uh, I work at the Sport Ireland Institute, so I had access through that. I was very lucky to have access to a lot of elite athletes. So they completed a, an online battery of questionnaires. And like I said already, th- this can be... Like burdensome, it's hard to get people to do it. um I think it took about thirty minutes to complete. Yeah, we're lucky, so we've got three hundred thirty-eight complete data sets anyway, from a range of sports. So we we had athletics, boxing, GA, hockey, rugby, rugby sailing, uh swimming, and then so, some other sports in there. So real good range of sports. So they completed the the EuroQual, which is a, an assessment of quality of life. So
0: so sorry, Ron, before we before we dig into those methods. What was yeah. the aim here? Were you just trying to characterize the sleep behavior yeah. really? Was that, that was so, that just the aim? You wanted to kind of create yeah. this baseline.
1: Wanted to create a baseline. Looking at the research, there's lots of stuff in terms of sleeping athletes and how important they think it is. So going back to I think I always go back to that paper in 2012, Venter. So athletes say sleep's the most important recovery modality or the most used recovery modality, stuff like that. So yeah. Um, wanted more yeah for the PhD to characterize what athletes were doing in terms of recovery and look as well at, at their sleep. Um, so on two different days, so a training or competition day and on a rest day as well. Cause obviously okay. a lot of the research shows that sleep improves on, on a rest day um, naturally because they have time to lie on or they choose to go to bed earlier or they're more relaxed and, and stuff like that. Um so, yeah, I just wanted to characterize, really, the sleep and recovery of elite and sub-elite athletes and then look at the differences as well. And before
0: um, we look at the questionnaires, I was going to just ask you, what's your categorization of elite and sub-elite? What was your criteria around those?
1: Yeah, so that's obviously a difficult one, and we've talked about that already in terms of, you know, classifying yeah. a- elite and sub-elite athletes. So you used um, a published... Um, kind of taxonomy or classification system of elite athletes. So Swan et al, uh, 2015, I think. So basically an elite athlete was anyone who was currently funded or receiving support as part of a national or professional team, the, uh, members of an international squad, members of an academy for a professional team, uh, or nationally ranked in their sport because obviously there's variations and nuances to the athletes that we included. So we had a lot of uh, elite and sub elite GA players. So uh, obviously a lot of your audience might know. So uh, GA, at least in theory, is uh, amateur, which is Gaelic football or yes, hurling. So Gaelic B- football B- or sport. hurling or camogie or handball. Um, so it was predominantly elite males that completed the questionnaire so elite Gaelic footballers so they compete on a county by county basis in a championship an all-Ireland championship so they essentially train full-time like full-time athletes but a lot well the vast majority of them would work as well um, so they were classified as elite in that they were nationally ranked in their sport and competing at the highest level possible so don't get any,
0: don't, get, don't get any money
1: uh, I'll, I'll give a soft no on that. <laughs> no, Wait, well, there's obviously benefit and kind and stuff, and uh, <laughs> you know, they get looked after, I think is probably the best thing to say. Um, but yeah, uh, the other thing I would say is they absolutely deserve everything that they get. Um, yeah, so that defining lead athletes is difficult, but like I said, I'd refer anyone to that paper by Swan et al., it's a really good paper in terms of defining elite athletes and then the sub elite athletes were anyone just below that level but they had to train or a combination of training and competition for at least 400 minutes a week
0: okay so this could be like someone doing a training for a triathlon or exactly kind of a i I think i coined the term before well i'm not coined the term i've used the term before like serious amateur (laughs) you know yeah that's a really
1: good way to put it a serious amateur someone who's Probably training every day or, you know, doing at least doing something towards their sport every day and and taking it very, very seriously. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So a real good cohort and uh, an interesting mix of sports. Um, So, yeah, it's, you know, real good spread in terms of the different types of athletes involved. Um, And then obviously anyone with, you know, anyone who reported a sleep disorder was excluded from the analysis. So no then and, go yeah, I on. Ahead.
0: Say, want, I was going to say, do you want to delve into the methods then to explain these? Because yeah. they're quite comprehensive.
1: All right. So there's a lot of a lot of data and a lot of questionnaires. So the first one is the Euroqual. So it's a quality of life assessment. So it's a five dimension questionnaire and a, it's also got a a scale that's quite useful. So it's a hundred point scale where they self report their health. So they rate their health out of a hundred. Then I'm sure most people will be familiar with the PSQA. So Pittsburgh sleep quality index. They also completed the Epworth sleepiness scale. So looking at uh, daytime sleepiness, then they completed the recovery stress questionnaire for athletes or rescue sport. So that's a 52 item uh, recovery stress questionnaire. So, Get stressed Get stressed <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's stressed. It's stressed. So it takes a long time. Then a chronotype questionnaire, so the Ames or athlete morning, morningness, eveningness questionnaire, and a sleep diary. And then they also completed questions around nutrition, so supplementation and alcohol intake as well. Uh, so, yeah, this is comprehensive in terms of the, the
0: data collected <clears throat> yeah lots of stuff in there so yeah you've got like you said quality of life you got yeah. um sleep quality for the pittsburgh daytime sleepiness recovery chronotype so whether yeah. people like to get up early or go to bed early whether people like to go mm-hmm. to bed late or get up late, and then you got the sleep diary um yeah. which obviously you said took in the alcohol did did, that, did you record caffeine there as well ron or was I that i didn't
1: yeah. uh well, we did record mm-hmm. caffeine within supplementation, but that was kind of one, not limitation, but I, I think caffeine might've fell through the cracks slightly. Yeah. So we had a kind of massive under-report on, on caffeine intake. So I, yeah. I think they only reported caffeine supplementation. So things like caffeine, chew gum, um, uh, things yeah. like that before training, as opposed to kind of habitual caffeine intake.
0: Is, is coffee now like, cause I've been gone out there nearly like 20 years, like in i have been back a couple of times, and I'm just wondering is the is the coffee culture hit Ireland? Is like everybody oh, does everybody go for absolutely. a coffee like in the morning? Yeah,
1: yeah. So like during the <laughs> pandemic, I think every horse box in Ireland's been turned into a coffee cart. <laughs> uh, so, <right. laughs> I think if there's any space going anywhere, there's a there's a coffee coffee stand there now. But I not co- <laughs> well, can only speak for myself. But I I definitely love a good cup of coffee. Yeah, it's my it's my only voice
0: these days. I don't I don't touch the uh I don't touch the de- the devil's drop anymore, but I, I do like a number of coffees throughout the day. Oh, and yeah. so you know, people go, Oh, I can't believe you drink so much coffee. I'm like, oh, leave me alone. Oh, it's the one thing I have and it's the one thing I love. I don't think I could ever give it up. I absolutely love it. Uh, I don't think I could give it up either. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> right. So um You've got all this data, you put it all together, which is a lot of data to be looking at. Yeah. Um, just out of interest, you, you had, like you said, 338 people. Mm-hmm. How many questions in total did you have if you added them all up? How many points? Would it have been like 130, 140?
1: More, I think it was... <clears throat> so looked at, obviously, you, you then look at component scores and you score every questionnaire. So I think yeah. when all the variables were in, I think there was maybe three, four hundred.
0: Three, four hundred. So you had, I'm just t- trying to think like in terms of data points. If you had 300 and yeah. what, 38 people, yeah. like 300 data points, Yeah, that's over 100,000
1: data points. That's a lot right. of data. It's a, a, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, spreadsheet when you look at it all. I was going to say,
0: yeah, how did you go with the spreadsheet? Did it give you the shits or did you actually enjoy trawling through
1: it? Uh, I, I think I'm probably a bit weird in terms of I like looking through it. I like you know going through an SPSS spreadsheet or whatever you're using and and uh, cleaning the data, but I think it you get a feeling of, for for the data yeah. when you're doing that, and then you start to think, all right, am I'm I'm, I'm kind of motoring here now. I'm getting through it, so I I don't I don't mind it too much. But uh, it's, that's a big
0: um, that's a big tip I would say for aspiring researchers, and I think yeah. everybody goes through that. Is uh if you want to get into research, there will be times days, weeks where you will sit every day looking at the same data set over and over again, graphing stuff, checking stuff. Uh And as Ronan said, you might think it's a pain in the ass and it's a waste of time and you just want to throw it straight away into your statistical package. But it's so important to go through it because you're dead right, Ronan. That's where you actually that's where you marry up kind of all your your, your hypothesis and your aims yeah. and if you've been talking to teams or talking to athletes then you start the data doesn't match what they said you start yeah. kind of you really start kind of pin the outline of this picture of what you're right. trying to do with a paper and I think it's really important to spend a lot of time like graphing graphing is like yeah. just doing heaps of graphs and once you've everything scored and looking for any these anomalies and gremlins and doing uh-huh. it over and over again and you're right it's, it is a bit therapeutic and it, it, it becomes actually quite enjoyable because as
1: I do enjoy it
0: yeah I, I like it too. I like you know, sort of getting a big mug of coffee sitting down big screen Aye. and just going through it like all day taking breaks every couple of hours and um, but it is because you can really you get locked into it and see what's coming out and I think if my biggest advice to anybody doing you know anything where it's kind of empirical and you're looking at data, you have to spend that time because if you don't spend it here, you're going to spend it downstream fixing up the errors Absolutely. in the statistical models, rewriting your paper when you find an anomaly. Yeah. Or getting absolutely hammered down at a scientific conference because you can't answer the questions. Yeah. But if you go through this, you'll be you will actually nearly I've been on podiums before. I asked a question in my mind's eye, I can see the spreadsheet. And I'm like, subject yeah. 23, four lines in, blah, blah. Like, I'm like, yeah. he was the anomaly. And I can I've even I've even said before, no, subject 23, he was an anomaly. He had a serious <laughs> sleep disorder. And people are like, How do you remember the number? I'm like, I looked at that data for okay. months, like you know, All so right. you get you get kind of in tune with it but it's so important to take that time and do that so that's that's like a big tip for it anybody is. in
1: research i know and i would say going forward i think uh you know as you go on in research uh, obviously you move more towards research supervision and kind of looking after projects but i think i will always you do that and look at the data because yeah i think it's so important like you said and it helps you join up the dots you know and i think a lot of the time obviously I I am doing some supervision at the minute but like I think if you don't look at the data sometimes you miss a bit or you know other people's interpretation at times can can differ so you need to look at it yourself
0: yeah I I totally agree yeah and it's it's really and and don't just look at it in terms of like just taking out some numbers and building tables I think Bar charts, figures, lines going everywhere. Yeah. It's just really interesting because then you go, "What's going on there?" And then you think, "Like, did I score that wrong? Did something happen?" It's such a such a good thing to do. Someone's listening to this, going, "What a pair of geeks!" I know. There, there you go. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, you 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 played around with these one hundred thousand data points. I did. And uh, what did you
1: find? Oh, Nothing. <laughs> stuff, Ian, but we'll just look at the significant <laughs> stuff. So, in terms of quality of life, uh, mobility came out as an issue so you'd expect that you know high training load so overall 19% of athletes in total had issues with mobility so they're sore in the morning or whatever and pain pain was the big one so 50% of the whole sample so I think 52% of the sub elite group 46% of the elite group reported pain in the morning Um, and then the only other real significant thing in the Euroqual was Uh, there's a question around anxiety and depression. So 34% of the sample had some sort of anxiety and depression symptomology. And I think that's uh, something that probably needs to be teased out in athletes as well. Um, Obviously there's mental health um, has a massive impact on sleep and it's not something that's really looked at much Um, It was beyond the scope of this study, but just I think it's something to note, you know, Um, then in terms of the PSQA, so there's real similar results in both groups, um, but in terms of global score, so obviously global score greater than five, indicates kind of clinically significant sleep problems. So 65% of the entire sample, 64% of the elite and 65% of the sub-elite uh, recorded PSQI global scores of higher than five or greater than or equal to five. So obviously that's in line with lots of research. Um, In terms of daytime sleepiness, um, again, very similar in both groups, Uh, a score of greater than or equal to 10 indicates excessive daytime sleepiness, so uh, 22% of the elite group and 20% of the sub elite group recorded scores of 10 or greater. Then in terms of recovery, to be honest, initially I thought there'd be a massive difference in the two groups, Um, so there's similar scores kind of across the board, but uh, in terms of the sport-specific recovery, so you can pull the data into different um, scales and subscales. So there was a significant difference between them for sport-specific recovery with higher scores in the elite group, as you'd expect. Then when you drill down into that, um, four of the kind of subscales so being in shape, personal accomplishment, self-efficacy, and self-regulation were significantly higher in the elite group. And, um, nothing on chronotype so the spread across the sample was um it was all different types so morning types intermediate evening and kind of the same sort of spread in both groups so no significant differences then in terms of the sleep diary
0: i just asked you a question i run on that on the chronotype was it was there like um when you say it was a spread was there an even spread like was there or was it all over the gaff like was there 20% morning 10% intermediate and then or was it just like no, nearly three, three, like of, a third, a third?
1: It was kind of a third, a third, a third, but there were there were more, more morning types in both groups. But yeah, when you look at it, there wasn't anything jumping out in terms of, oh, these are all massively morning type or lots of intermediates.
0: The reason I ask that question is because it's really interesting if you look at like anthropology. Anthropologists mm-hmm. think that basically people, like this is the way we were designed to have nearly an even spread mm-hmm. for like keeping us safe you know the people who got up early and uh, the people who stayed up late so we'd have less time kind of as a, yeah. a herd or a group where we want to call it, or a clan where we won't get protected so it's really yeah. interesting that every time these chronotype studies get done you yeah. see very much this this happening in in, in the bigger yeah. groups so the smaller groups not so much like i did a study recently in swimmers and and Old going through anatomy. that data phase well interesting enough oh. they all said they were extreme because I was actually part of that swimming group we were all trained to swim a 20k ocean swim oh, to an okay, island yeah. off here off and they all said oh yeah we're extreme morning types we love getting up in the morning and training and so we had we had like a heap of questionnaires on the mactigraphy, and we moderned yeah. them I think we had like 50 no it was more probably even more than probably had the guts to 90 nights on each person were oh, really? And um, yeah, they all said they were morning types. I think there was only one that was an extreme morning type. Two were morning type. The rest were intermediate more or less yeah. and one or two were night owls. And so there were more like about 85% of the group or 90% of the group would say were intermediates. Okay. Because you could tell, and then, so they were like, well, we don't believe that data. And I, because I presented it back to them and I thought, here we go. And I, uh-huh. I set the old flight trap. I went, yeah, I know you don't believe in the data. I knew you were going to say that. I said, so let's look at your actigraphy data, which is an objective measure of your sleep. And voila, let's look. Yeah. Because on the days you were training, where we had to start swimming at half five in the morning, you were up. Okay. But on the days where you weren't, you weren't getting out of bed till half six. So don't tell me you you'd normally get up at like <laughs> half four or five o'clock under your own steam. And on the weekends, the it, was ev- it was even more. And they were like, yeah, yeah, but we like, no, you like getting up and getting your training done. But yeah. if you were left here on devices, your chronotype yeah. is not an early morning person. Yeah. Oh yeah, it went.
1: <laughs> I just put it down to in our data the the spread of sports. You know, there is some of that stuff about you know athletes choose sports that match their chronotype.
0: Yeah. Um, and I just thought
1: because Does they had, select. Aye. So I thought because we had the the spread, then that was kind of the reason for it. But no, that's interesting. Yeah. Um. Then in terms of the sleep diary yet, yeah, so there in terms of kind of total sleep time, uh, there was slightly higher total sleep time reported by the, uh, sub elite group, so kind of in and around 8.2 hours was the mean and just over eight hours. So 8.01 for the elite group. And that was significantly different. And then again, sleep increased on our rest day as you'd expect. Um, so 8.59 hours for the sub elite group and 8.58 for the elite group. So no difference on a rest day really. Um, so yeah, that's sort of higher than a lot of stuff on athletes, but again, and I kind of noted it in the limitations of the paper athletes tend to overestimate, um, their sleep when it's self-report type measure. So I think there was a bit of that going on. um, I think what, like what, I've,
0: what I've found and I've seen in some other research as well, and even dealing with athletes consulting that tend to report time in bed as opposed yeah. to sleep duration. And yeah. I, I think like it's hard to report actual sleep because it's an unconscious act and you're trying to be conscious. So you're not, you're not going to be able to do it. No. So I generally, like I remember I did a study with the Western force and we looked at the sleep diary data versus the actigraphy data. Yeah. and The act, the self-reported data actually matched the time in bed data perfectly. So you could see like, cause really? they weren't accounting for sleep late and see any yeah, up, yeah. wake up time while they were asleep. So you actually had a perfect match. So sometimes I think it's, you know, I always kind of nearly interpret that like that's the time in bed or the sleep opportunity that yeah. they did. But, but saying that it, over eight hours is pretty good. Like a lot of athletes
1: yeah.
0: don't do that. So that, that's quite good.
1: Yeah, it was good. Um, and then in terms of nutrition, so it was more around supplements and reasons for use. So the most commonly used supplements were whey, obviously, most people reported using that for recovery, protein. caffeine, creatine, yep. yeah, whey protein, yeah, sorry, uh, multivitamins, fish oil, uh, probiotic, vitamin D, and then to a lesser extent, a lot of them reported taking nitrate, so beetroot juice, and iron. Um, nobody
0: reported taking magnesium or zinc. Nope.
1: Oh, but I think they may have they may have sort of recorded that as a kind of multivitamin or under multivitamin. Um again, it's one of the limitations of, of self report You know, it's yeah.
0: There's not look, there's not much data on magnesium and zinc and athletes, but or no. even shift workers, but I can tell you that from and obviously, there's the evidence is quite weak on that subject. But yeah. from a number of people who train a lot, and even myself, and um, when people do take like you know powdered magnesium, zinc supplementation before bed, um and iron, massive improvements yeah. in self-reported sleep. Like, yeah. I had a guy in the weekend actually from Dublin came up to me in the uh, place where we do jiu jitsu, and he goes, "Oh, I just want to thank you." He says for and he's probably listening to this episode He goes, I just want to thank you Because that magnesium has made a, a massive difference Because he works full time yeah. during the day And then trains at night And, you know, just in terms of recovery And then another guy who works offshore On oil and gas platforms He lifts a lot of weights, does jiu-jitsu as well okay. And uh, he said the same as well Like massive improvements in magnesium uh, yeah. and zinc And some of the guys as well That I, you know, worked with before Massive improvements yeah. So it's interesting that nobody's kind of picked up on that one
1: I included them both in my in that narrative review but like like you said there's there's scant evidence but there's yeah. there's a small amount and again it's probably something that that is emerging needs to be needs to be investigated more because there's definitely something in it um and then as you'd expect in terms of alcohol intake it was higher higher intake in the Sobali group <laughs> and when they when they went drinking they drank more but you know again
0: consistent with the literature look at alcohol yeah you know, in, in these type of environments, especially in team sports, it doesn't seem to be like one or two drinks. It's like we'll get smashed and then abstain for a while. It's sort of like, yeah. well, we're going to town, we're going to town type of thing. You know, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Any difference between team sports individuals there or
1: no? Nothing massive no. jumping out. Um, again, I think not. Actually, a surprisingly low number of the cohort actually reported consuming alcohol at all. Um, which was surprising to be honest Um, I think a lot more probably consume alcohol than than actually recorded so it might have been to do with the time of year or the phase of the season that they were in Mm -hmm. Um, so quite a lot of them were were in the middle of their competitive season so obviously a lot of people choose not to consume alcohol during the season or at the more elite end they just don't have the opportunity
0: I don't know about the figures in Ireland, but I know the figures in Australia have showed that younger people over the last 10 years are drinking less and less. So there's not that kind of, you know, appetite, yeah, well, so I, to speak, to go with
1: and... uh, Anecdotally, I would, I would sort of tend to agree with that. I see a lot of our students, you know, that actually, you know, choose not to drink. Yeah. It's definitely becoming more and more kind of prominent that people don't drink alcohol.
0: Copious amounts of weed getting smoked, though. <laughs> <laughs> you have to substitute out something exactly <laughs> i'll tell you one thing though if you if you ask me what do i do with someone stoned or someone drunk i'd rather deal with someone stoned. i've never seen a stone guy trying to start a fight outside the nightclub oh that's for
1: sure
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioned there about the mental health of athletes we kind of yeah skipped over that one can we can we just go back to that for a second what what was that finding again
1: Just that there was relatively high levels of anxiety and depression. So it's only, it's one question on on Euroqual. So it's a small aspect of the study, but, you know, it was high levels. I think it was in and around um, 33, 34% of the whole sample reported having some sort of level of anxiety or depression.
0: Are you familiar with Michael Gradner's work from yeah. University of Arizona? Yeah, so he's got that consensus um p- paper that did mental health and elite athletes, International yeah. Olympic Committee consensus statement. Yeah, that's free on on the internet. There's a, a whole um host of people. Michael's on that. Michael does a lot of work in this area, and he's presented yeah. some data previously on a webinar we did around the start of COVID. And same thing, like with the lack of sleep and anxiety. Yeah, you know the sleep and suicide rates, um you know and sleep issues in young kids coming through as well so yeah yeah it's interesting that you that 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 popped up um would that be something that you would investigate further you think or yeah i think it's
1: or, definitely worth worth looking at uh, I've my hands full for at least for the next yeah, few yeah. months to get this phd done but i think there's two things that i would probably want to go on and look at and uh kind of and one of them is mental health around athlete sleep and then I think the findings from this Kiwi study are quite promising, so I'd like to, to look at that in more detail mm. and uh, in a more robust study because this one was conducted in the middle of the, the pandemic, so yeah. it was limited as to what we could do, really.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when the mental health one, I had um, <clears throat> another guy on before called Oscar Lederman, and okay. um, he spoke about... Let's <clears> follow <throat> the microphone. Um, he spoke about... <laughs> um, you know, his PhD was looking at exercises like an intervention for mental health, yeah. if I remember correctly. And so that's an interesting way where you can use it to improve like mental health or, you know, depression so on. Yeah. And then from the other hand, uh, other side of it is that elite athletes or sub elite athletes or highly trained athletes, serious amateurs, whatever you want to call them, yeah. might have anxiety and sort of depression around competing. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting too. Or you know, I know some other people as well as, as they're getting older and keep competing as well. You know, they're kind of hitting maybe 30 and then they're like, yeah. well, I can't afford a house and my mates have all oh, finished uni, they're married and got houses and I've got nothing and I'm, you know, renting a shitty room in a house or yeah. there's going be anxiety associated with that as well. So it's it's interesting one to delve into and, and you know, categorize again. So, yeah, fascinating area and something probably that doesn't get looked at enough because I think people think, I found over the years, people think, "Oh, because you're an athlete, you're healthy," and it's like, "Well, yeah. just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy." Like you were saying about the pain in the morning, yeah, It's two different things. And just because you're always oh, exercising in great shape, shape, and you might have a six pack, it doesn't mean that you're like, you know, you got the world by the by the tail. You know, you're not, exactly. you know, and that's sort of like in a happy mood every single day. So a lot of stress and yeah, anxiety so. comes yeah. to that competition as well.
1: Absolutely, and like uh, at the elite end, yeah, definitely, athletes are under a lot of pressure, and a lot yeah. of them deal with that in different ways, and you know. Obviously, a lot of them put pressure on themselves as well in terms of their performance. So, yeah, there's, there can be a lot, it depends on their personality slightly yeah. as well, but there can be a lot of performance anxiety in and around competition and stuff as well, or pressure to perform. Or, obviously, within professional environments, there can be pressure around contracts and stuff as well. And, you know, maybe trying to get a new contract and things like that. So, sports is a lot more complex sometimes than, than people think.
0: Yeah, not everybody in Ireland is like Conor McGregor and has the balls to go around and just, you know, do what they want to do. He's a, he's not every Irish person, you know. No, absolutely not. <laughs> so, um, so, Ronan, um, all this data, all this results, what what's mm-hmm. the kind of practical application that comes out for people who are coaches or athletes? What would you say to them given all this great work you've done?
1: In a nutshell, it just highlights that sleep and recovery has to be completely individualized. So again, that mightn't always be practical. So particularly at the sub elite end, yes, there's general recommendations around sleep and recovery that we can make. But at the elite end, you know, the person needs to be viewed as an individual. And the prescriptions around sleep and recovery need to be individualized. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Excellent. So let's let's just touch briefly on some of these other papers that you're gonna okay. work on. So the jet lag one, can you give us a little overview of the yeah. jet lag paper that you've uh, so, Probably we looked at a, again a
1: group of elite athletes so real small sample but it's an entire team so it was n equals seven so elite cyclists so they're traveling eastward crossing seven time zones so three flights um so from where China, to where from madrid so yeah they met up in madrid and traveled to japan so two stops so Oh, okay, it's in the paper. I'm not looking at it here, but I think it was Madrid to Dubai. Dubai to... Uh, a stopover somewhere. I can't remember. Singapore. And then another flight. Yes. I think it was Singapore. And then Japan. So three flights anyway. So we looked at sleep diary data again, but I backed it up with actigraphy. So started... Uh, so we've got a tr- baseline pre-travel. So five days pre-travel, the travel day, and then five days upon arrival. So looking at the impact of jet lag on their sleep, kind of key findings, um, time in bed, as you'd expect, was significantly reduced on both travel day and A plus one. So that's the arrival plus one first day after arriving and significant reduction in total sleep time as well on the travel day. Again, probably as you'd expect yeah. and on a plus one and sleep efficiency obviously reduced as a result of that significantly. There was an increase in, so we got them to report fatigue. So they self-reported fatigue every day, uh, go, uh getting up. So getting out of bed and going to bed. The only significant kind of finding there was fatigue going to bed was significantly increased on the travel day. Again, you'd expect that. And there was significant reductions in sleep quality on the travel day and A plus one. So kind of if we wanted to look at kind of the key finding, it's the jet lag seems to impact the first 48 hours, at least after eastward travel anyway. And then the, you see their, their sleep scores and the actigraphy data start to return towards yeah. baseline. So still still affected, say day three, day four, but not significantly. Yeah, at least statistically. Um, but you know, the key kind of finding was that it's the first 48 hours after travel that has that's when there's most disruption to sleep. So, yeah, and so
0: when you're flying eastward, you generally have more disruption as opposed to flying westward, yeah. Um, and this is kind of um, this is interesting because these are obviously highly trained elite psych- cyclists, yeah, yeah, elite cyclists. Do you think? Or potentially that elite athletes have the ability to overcome jet lag quicker than a normal sort of, you know, person yeah, out there.
1: I think there's some stuff in that. If you look at, I think it's, is it Fowler? There's loads of stuff by Fowler and jet lag. Peter Fowler, I think yeah, it, he's over yeah, here in yeah, Queensland. Yeah. Yeah. I think in one of his papers, he's noted about uh can experience plays a role. So the more yeah. times an athlete, completes long haul travel, then the impact of jet lags reduced. I suppose it's like anything you become used to, it, you kind of develop strategies to cope with it. Um, now, a lot of this group hadn't made a lot of uh, long haul journeys. Um, so I think uh, fitness plays a role. So the paper's not published yet, but it kind of summarizes the key things that affect the impact of jet lag. So fitness is one of them. Gender seems to be another uh the duration of travel obviously and the amount of time zones crossed plays a role as well but i do think there is something in that that um well at least we can can only speak about my data but it seems to be that jet lag isn't as severe in athletes as it is in the general population but i suppose um a lot of the stuff in the general population is simulated travel or probably not realistic so if you take someone oh yeah
0: yeah, yeah, lab best. Of, going yeah. to
1: the airport bar and then maybe kind of eating a certain way and having a few drinks on the plane. There, the impact the jet lag on them is probably going to be a lot higher than an athlete who's, you know, eating well, hydrating, probably keeping keep you know getting up, moving around every hour or two, you know, doing a stretch and things like that. So obviously, there's, there's going to be a difference. But I, I, th- I think there is something in. If that in and around athletes probably being better able to cope. Yeah, I used to I used to travel a
0: lot for work, like heaps of international travel, and then heaps of domestic and before COVID, and then prior to doing my own sort of work in my own business. And yeah. one of the things, you know, you'd be yet you different hotels, like you're living a bag and whatever, and yeah, sometimes be in the gym, and you might just be talking to somebody or at breakfast, you might like, you know two-minute conversation. It always struck me yeah. really interestingly that the people that looked so unhealthy, the people that were overweight, eyes hanging out of their head, smell a drink off them. Yeah, They were the ones that really struggled. Like I remember one day talking to a guy in Singapore at the gym and he was in bits and he said he was English and he said, oh, I only feel like I'm getting used to it now. He says, I've been here for about seven days. I'm here <laughs> for two weeks for work. And I was like, well, that makes sense because like every hour you cross, times on yeah. your cross, from the you every hour you cross of a time zone takes about a day to get used to it. Yeah. So that makes sense. But he was like, you know, one, he was really unfit and unhealthy. I, he was only the same age as me at the time, like 40 or something, or maybe no, he was actually right, pretty, okay. Probably younger maybe at the time, like 35, 36. geez he looked like he was about 50. But anyway, he he was he was in a world of hurt, but he was doing all the crazy things. Like if he woke up at two in the morning, he'd just get up and go to the bar and have a drink. Like he did all everything wrong you could do. Yeah. And so uh, you know I I had I had actually come in, I think, from all those Singapores on the same time zone. I come in, I think, from the US. So I was all over the gaff as well. But I was generally okay within 24 hours, 36 uh, 36 hours. At the time, I was training for an ultramarathon. So I was doing lots of running. Fairly fairly fit and healthy. And like to your point, had things kind of dialed in from doing these trips a lot. But you kind of have to have a strategy and go, right, I'm going to have a couple of shitty days and then I'm going to get into the the groove, you know? But I think... um, so, it's, I, think it's, I think it's interesting, as you said, it's two parts. It's one is the fitness, yeah. and then two is the strategies on top of it, which are so important. But we found the same thing, running that you found with the Western Force in that paper that's under yeah. review at the moment. Basically, you know, and they, these guys were going westwardly direction from Australia to Africa to South America and then back. Yeah. And it was generally uh, every new time zone. Some guys adapted within 24 hours um, and then some within 48 hours. So it's very, very, very similar kind of findings. No yeah. more than 48 hours or kind of kind of back to full power, so to speak. Sleep, yeah. bang, back up yeah. and no effect on performance. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's, it probably goes against some of the stuff that, that's already out there. Um, but again, it needs to be replicated. And, you know, it, it sounds like you already have. So we'll look forward to reading that paper when it's out. Yeah, it's been under review for about eight
0: months. Come on, people. <laughs> if you're reviewing it, please help us out here. <laughs> Like it's, it's too long. Come on.
1: Reviews (laughs) seem to be getting harder and harder and longer and longer, aren't they?
0: Yeah. And I think it's uh, like, I generally will accept at least one a month if I get asked and I try to do my best, but you know, you could have a full-time job review and not getting paid. So I I can't say so many you can do as you know. And yeah, I think you're right about the stuff as well, the jet lag studies, lots of them are simulated as well, not very many in real life, which needs to happen. Um, And actually a couple of weeks ago, which is I think just in press at the moment, we had a travel fatigue and jet lag consensus paper accepted.
1: Okay. We had an interventions
0: paper before Christmas when we showed lack of interventions and now there's the consensus paper, which has been accepted. So there was a host of uh, thousands on that paper as well, all Uh come together, I think there's like 25 of us or something on it. So a few names you'll probably recognize.
1: Yeah, I'm
0: sure. Um, So that'll be out soon anyway. Okay. Look forward Um, to reading that. Yeah, it's pretty it's it's good because it's practical. It's got like you know, here's yeah. what you do with like going east, here's what you do going west. So you can be, yeah. you know, like an athlete can pick up themselves really and get a lot of it, I think. So it's it's good For in that athlete. respect, yeah. And the last one then, Ronan, you were looking at yeah. Kiwi fruits. This is quite novel. Yeah. So it's really people, novel. So yeah, we are talking about the fruit, the kiwi fruit yeah. that comes in little brown skin that people yeah. that's what we're talking about, in case anybody can't it's understand.
1: True. Your bog standard kiwi fruit. <laughs> so there's a there's a kind of well, I suppose it was the first paper looking at kiwi fruit. It's in a I think a hospital-based population in uh, somewhere in Asia. I'm going to say Korea, but I could be wrong. So Len et al. is the paper looking at the impact of kiwi fruit consumption on sleep. Um, so. When I was Kiwi wasn't on my radar. When I was doing the narrative review, I obviously looked at this research and looked at stuff around kiwi and the, the kind of nutrient profile of kiwi. And in terms of uh, kind of sleep-promoting properties, kiwi contains serotonin. It's high in folate, so obviously folate insufficiency is linked to insomnia. And it's high in vitamin C and vitamin E as well. So just sort of kind of touched on it. It's very novel. There's not much in it, but there's enough there to suggest that it would definitely benefit athlete recovery. And there's obviously potential sleep promoting properties there as well. So mm. I had intended to look at a kind of Kiwi protocol in the run up to the, well, they 2021 games now, but the, the Olympics in 2020, but obviously COVID put the the brakes on that. So kind of the pivot slightly and then, do something during the pandemic so we looked at using actigraphy but it wasn't practical during the the pandemic to, to be sending watches out to people or meeting them you know it just wasn't possible so it's self report again which we've already talked about the limitations of but anyway so they completed baseline and post intervention questionnaires so the rescue again and the PSQA so we wanted to look at whether changes in recovery between baseline and post-intervention and in their sleep. And then day-to-day, they completed a sleep diary and questions around fatigue and stuff. So in terms of key findings, there was a significant uh, change from baseline to post-intervention in sleep quality, so PSQI, sleep quality, and global scores. So the mean at baseline, again, I might get this slightly wrong, uh, but it's in a, it was over five anyway. I think it was a 68 and it reduced to 4.3, 4.4. So a lot of them moved from kind of clinically significant sleep stuff down. Then in terms of recovery, there were significant reductions for fatigue, physical complaints and disturbed breaks. Again, they're just subscales on the rescue. And then when I looked at, I pulled all the data and looked at week by week. So baseline and then week one, two, three, four of the intervention. There was a significant increase in total sleep time, particularly in week three, uh, sleep efficiency and a significant reduction in uh, awakenings and OASO. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's something in there. I'm not saying that it's definitive, but you know, I think as a starting point in terms of research around sleep and Kiwi consumption in athletes, there's enough to suggest that it has some sort of an impact on Sleep and yeah, I I want to replicate it. Um, yeah. as soon as I can, really.
0: That paper you'd, uh, you'd you reference there at the start, Lynn, I've read that paper. Yeah. One of my criticisms of that paper is, um, so it's always easy to criticize, but one of my criticisms yeah. of that paper is is that it only had three nights of actigraphy data. Yeah. Which is quite low. So, like you know, we would generally recommend if you want to get a good baseline, like if you really wanted yeah. to look at something, it's three weeks. Uh, Of course. And so if you look at in the the sleep science world and this is where like when you start getting what I call worlds colliding because I come from a sleep science world. So sleep science chronobiology and you're interacting with sports science and then you're interacting with nutrition. So when you get these kind of worlds colliding there can be a little bit of stuff that gets falls through the cracks like as you said earlier on. I think one of those things is that like some of the the good practices or best practices around measurements and so on. And I think you know we all have to do better in that respect. But yeah. I think, um, and that's, that's where I actually think we're cross-promotion of our fields is, is really important, multidisciplinary Absolutely. approaches, because then we can actually start getting all of our tentacles into each other's world and, and helping each exactly. other. But um, in that paper, you have three days, so if you can get like 21 days, it would be, yeah. so if anybody's looking to do actigraphy studies, 21-day yeah. baseline is awesome because then you can really start to measure yeah. and show from the baseline of behaviors like with your artigraphy one and the last one for jet lag having five days with baseline is great as well you get this kind of like you know rush out period where you can see what's going on you got something to measure against so you can prove or disprove i think
1: um it comes back to the start where we're talking about it's kind of access to equipment having enough to conduct kind of larger scale studies and yeah i think that the clear next step in terms of that kiwi study have access to quite a number of um, active watches, so I want to replicate yeah. with actigraphy over a longer period of time, um, and hopefully get similar findings, which would be would be great.
0: Yeah, I think as well. Like, um,
1: we're probably getting into
0: like scientific ethical issues, or yeah. you know, beliefs or whatever. But I think a lot of people think that when they publish a paper, there has to be some crazy intervention or randomised control and all that, and that's yeah. great. Like, if you can do it. And it's great if you have the money to do it and it's yeah, great exactly. if you have the time to do it and the support because they're, they're, they're hard, complex projects. I also think as well that the other approach is just as good where we start kind of, I often imagine it like a big funnel. You start up yeah. the top with observational type stuff. Let's just work out, is there something here that's worth looking at? In actual, in another subject where I studied in mining engineering, we do these um, order of magnitude studies. And yeah. it's basically like we've done some drilling on, a, on a, in, a, in a remote area we got some gold here. we got some gold there. Let's have a look more at the details to see if we could potentially get it out. So we do some more sampling. We think the ore body is a certain orientation. We look at the distance from a port. We look at how much material we have to move, how much infrastructure we have to buy. And then we kind of work out, yeah, maybe that's actually a a go or a no-go. And I think in science, in terms of sleep science, we can do the same thing with observational studies. We can collect these kind of outer stakes data and then say, yeah, there's something going on here. Yeah. Now we'll start filling in those holes with actigraphy and PSG. But I think a lot of times we want to go the other way, and we want to do these crazy big expensive lab-based studies. Yeah. And and have the gold standard perfect every time. And I think the other way is good, um, because we we develop it over time. It's also easy to do. So it's it's quicker to do. Of course. And then, like you said as well, Ron, you hit the nail right on the head. Like things like COVID, uh, finance, um, and. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think that we would all love a scientist. We would love to be bankrolled like millions of oh, dollars a year. We'd love to do loads of experiments. I'm sure you're like me. You've got a list of things yeah. you want to do. And it's, you know, it's not for the want of not wanting to do it. It's the fact of you just can't. You just can't resource yeah. it.
1: That's that's the big one. And I think, yeah. like you said, I, I don't want to say start small because that's not really it. But kind of start, keep it simple and do it well. That's kind of what I always come back to. And then, you know, do, do it better the next time if you can or delve into it in more detail. But I, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell for me. Keep it simple and do it well. Yeah.
0: Know. I'm the same. I just want to do stuff that has practical application. I don't really exactly. care what the journal that goes into the impact factor. I just want to make sure I do the best job I can and then have practical applications. Yeah. And if I can make it free to everybody, then even better again. Even better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Which, uh, by the way, before we wrap up, I want to plug the Sleep for Performance seminar, which is happening on August uh, 12th. Check out those times for your time zones as well, depending on where you are located. There will be three sessions across a 16-hour period. Yes, I know you can't get to all the sessions. I know you're busy, but just register and you get access to them afterwards. Try and come along to at least one. But if you register, you get access to all the videos after uh, the event has finished and uh, there is prize money in there for any up and coming researchers from doing your honors degrees. If you have those in your country, all the way up through to five years post PhD, it's cash prize and offer. Not big, but there's something we hopefully we can get more money and give you bigger prizes. We will. Um, it's free to register. It's free to present. And yes, anybody can come along. Stop emailing me, asking me, can my wife attend? Can my boyfriend attend? Uh, i got a friend that lives in the Solomon Islands. Can he, can he, anybody can attend? My kid is 15. She wants to know if anybody can attend. Stop asking me. Anybody can attend. That's anybody,
1: Ronan. I'll I'll be there, Ian. (laughs) I might even stick an abstract in this week. Stick an abstract in,
0: yeah. And if anybody's published already, you can stick that abstract in. We want to hear from you. All right, Ronan, thanks very much for your time today. Um, Before you go, can you tell all the wonderful listeners where they can find you on the social media handles or email or how
1: else can they get in touch with you? So my email is Ronan.Doherty, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y at L-Y-I-T.ie. And my social media, the only one I really use for work is Twitter. So at the Ronan Doherty.
0: Okay. So if you want to go on there and fight with Ronan on Twitter, off you go. <laughs> See if you it. See if you see if you can poke the bear there and see what happens. Well, thanks very much for uh, coming on today. Um, let's uh, let's try and reconnect again when you have your jet lag and kiwi fruit studies. I'll be very interested to see what you're finding on those. And uh, all the best for the rest of your PhD. Um, hope it all goes well. You did it through a hard time with coronavirus, so okay. you know, congrats for even getting the data. It's uh, it's you, you did well. So yeah, wish you all the best with the rest of that.
1: Thanks, Ian, and thanks for the invite, and I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you.
0: No worries.